Listen, I feel like after those kids saying we can just go home, we can just be done, go get early lunch. Um, but I'm so thankful to be with you this morning. My name is Trevor Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. And it's my honor this morning to open up the Bible together and hopefully allow God to teach us something new, to transform us, to make us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. Uh, we've been in the middle of a sermon series called Encountering Jesus. Who's enjoyed this series? Has it been good? Uh, if not, it's okay, I guess. But we have been going through the entire book of Mark. And one of the things that I've loved about this series is we've basically kind of allowed Mark to tell us what do we need to know about Jesus. You, you tell us, Mark, what is something that we've been missing? What is something we have not seen? And essentially Mark throughout the entire book takes the gospel and turns it like a diamond and shows us different vantage points and angles about who Jesus is based upon each and every interaction that he has with individuals and characters throughout the book. And so this has been a really, really fun series. I've really enjoyed being a part of it. And today is our last week. Everyone said, ah. But don't worry, we have another series next week uh, as we begin Advent that I'm excited about too. So 14 years ago, almost 14 years ago, I believe, um, I walked into McAllister's Deli and I came in kind of as I did every week it seemed. I had two friends who worked there in the back. They were, they were cooks there that live with me here in town. So I would oftentimes work out and then I would go in there to order a spud and sweet tea, perhaps a cookie if I felt like one um, at different times. But one day I walked in to say hi to my friends and to hang out a little bit and I saw this stunning blonde behind the counter when I walked in. And so I walked up to the counter, not sure how to begin this conversation. So I just ordered the spud and the sweet tea and thought that'd be fine. The problem was after I had done that, I didn't really know what to say next. So I'm standing there looking at this girl uh, in the face behind the counter who I'd never met before. And I decided to just say the first thing that came to my mind that seemed like the natural progression of this conversation. And so I said, Hey, um, look at my spider bite. And Two days previous to this, I had been attacked in the night by an unseen arachnid. So I had this spider bite that had gotten a bit gnarly. And so I thought it would be a good place to start a conversation. I don't think she thought it was a very good place to start a conversation. So uh, luckily, even in that first interaction, um, I'm a smooth operator, I know. And this, this first conversation didn't go as planned. If I could go back, probably I would do it a little bit differently, except that it worked out. But I would probably go back and say something maybe a little smoother, like, my name's Trevor or something, you know, like maybe ease into the, the spider bite conversation. So we, we started this conversation. I ordered the things. I met her for the first time. Within a couple of days, I was actually at Lexington Medical Center, had to get this thing taken care of, and I survived. And I think it's because I uh, encountered a brutal attack, and I survived the whole thing that she was impressed by me. And this first encounter that Jenna and I had together, uh, who's Jen, Jenna Owens, who's now Jenna Miller, uh, it worked out pretty well. And so this encounter changed everything. It changed the whole trajectory of my life. And in fact, because of that one encounter, because of that one conversation, we now have a dog named Cruz. We have a leopard gecko named uh, Shark Toe Miller. And then we have three amazing kids, Eli, Owen, and Murray. And, and none of this would have been possible if we would not have had this first encounter with one another, this first interaction with each other. And so what we're looking at in, in the book of Mark is essentially these different encounters that take place. And some interactions, some encounters we have, they, they change everything. And so my hope would be this morning as we open up God's word one last time in the book of Mark in chapter 15, this particular encounter, above all the encounters that we've had with Jesus and different characters throughout the scriptures, this encounter changes everything. It turns everything on its head. Everything that we've seemed to know about Jesus, seemed to know about the kingdom of God, seemed to know about what God is doing within the world, this one encounter changes it all. So I'm thankful that I got a chance to meet Jenna Miller that day. I'm thankful for the past 12 years of marriage. It's been really, really good. 
Now, today is the last week of an eight-week series we've walked through the book of Mark and encountered Jesus in multiple kinds of ways. And Mark is introducing to us, from chapter 1 to chapter 16, Jesus in a very specific kind of way. In the very beginning, he introduces Jesus to us, and then he shows us these different stories of how Jesus interacts with different people in multiple ways, from healings to uh, the casting out of demons to to the feeding of the hungry, all as a way of showing us more and more and more who this Jesus is, so that we can hopefully answer one daunting question that's offered up in chapter one all the way throughout the entire book. And the question is simply this, who is Jesus? Who is he? If Mark had a stated goal within his book, it is this, to show us what Jesus is like and who he actually is. So we've experienced him so far in the first seven weeks in multiple ways. We've experienced and encountered Jesus as good news. We've encountered him as divine, as a storyteller, as revolutionary, as a demon caster, as a healer. And last week we encountered him as someone who is worthy of our worship. And today we're going to encounter him in one last way. This is the most profound of all of them. And it's simply this, Jesus as sacrifice. Jesus as sacrifice. I would argue that chapter 15 shows us the clearest picture of who Jesus is, not just who Jesus is, but what God is like as well. Now this word sacrifice is a word that we use oftentimes for all kinds of different things, but I think in essence, sacrifice essentially is this, in the simplest form, it's it's a suffering of loss. Sacrifice is is a giving up of something. In fact, I would argue that sacrifice is largely connected to love. When we're willing to sacrifice something, Typically, we do it because we love something so much. If you're a parent in the room, raise your hand. If you're a parent in the room, you know sacrifice is a part of it, is it not? Uh, Prashanth Betu, you may know Prashanth. He's a good friend of ours here from the church. He's one of our partners in India, and he's in town. I think he's in the other service at 1045, but he was here at 9 o'clock. Just a blessing to our church, and he was here. They have now two children. So I asked him, I was like, Prashanth, how's things going? I hadn't seen him since he's been in town. He said, it's great. I got two kids. I'm like, how's it going? He's like, it's hard. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, try three. It gets even worse. But it's sacrifice. And you do it because you love your children. You change the dirty diapers because you love your children. You get up in the middle of the night over and over and over again. Maybe not because of love, but because you have to. But you do it because essentially you love your children. You you sacrifice financially. You sacrifice in every kind of way because you love your kids. That's what sacrifice in the end is really all about. It's an act of love. And so Jesus, as we encounter here in chapter 15, essentially what we're encountering is the kind of love that God has for the entire world, for all people, laid out for us in this particular encounter. Now, after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem within the book of Mark for the very last time with his disciples, one of the final things he does with them is he sits down uh, to a meal with them. They're eating in this upper room. Jesus knows where this thing is headed. He knows what's happening next. But no matter how many times he says it, everyone else seems to miss it. So they're eating this meal together one more time, spending time with one another. And Jesus takes the bread at the meal on the table and he lifts it up to them. And he says, see this this bread? It's like my body. And he breaks it. He says, it's going to be broken for you. And he puts it down and he takes the cup of wine. He lifts it before those at the table and he says to them, see this cup? This is like the blood. This is like my blood that will be sacrificed and poured out for the forgiveness of sins for you and for many. 
Even here at this final meal, Jesus is again reminding them of where this is headed, where his life has come from, where it's come from, and where it's headed, and where it's going. This is building upon three different predictions he has already given in the book of Mark in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 about his ultimate death and crucifixion, and then his ultimate resurrection. Now following this encounter at this meal, the disciples and Jesus head to the Garden of Gethsemane, And if you know the scriptures, if you know the end of this story, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where Jesus is handed over to authorities. He's arrested. He's taken into custody, and he's put on an unfair trial all throughout the night. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 15 after he is convicted. In chapter 15, verses 21 through 27, the Bible says this. Jesus is heading alongside of a group of people to a place where he's going to be crucified. And a certain man from Cyrene named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which a quick little note here, by the way, Alexander and Rufus were actually pretty common names within the ancient Near East. But some people argue that Rufus is actually one of the people that, that Paul is writing to in the New Testament, who is actually a church leader in Rome. Pretty interesting that this young boy right here watches his father in this particular scenario and potentially becomes a part of the early church leading what Jesus is doing. The father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see who would get it. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him was over his head, and it said, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. You see, Jesus, after he's arrested all night, he's put on trial. He's beaten, he's bloody. He's exhausted, and now he's being forced to carry a cross down a road called the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of suffering, all the way to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is a place outside of Jerusalem on a hill that, oddly enough, looked like a skull, but also it was a place where Rome would take those who would cause harm to the, to the government of Rome, and they would publicly execute them right there. Because of the exhausted state, the Bible says that these soldiers grab a man out of the crowd named Simon, and they tell Simon, you carry the cross. You carry his cross. The Bible says he's Simon of Cyrene, which more than likely, Simon is a Jew who's come from North Africa. And he's come to Jerusalem for the same reason that every other Jew has come to Jerusalem at this point in time. It was a festival called Passover. Each and every year, Jews from all over the region would come together to celebrate Passover, which is an incredibly important festival within the life of a Jewish believer. You see, Passover harkened back all the way to where the Israelite people were enslaved in Egypt. You may know this story. There's multiple plagues that finally God brings down on Egypt so that Egypt would finally let them go. And the final plague was this, the death of the firstborn son of Egypt. But God told the Israelite people, If you take a sacrifice and place the blood over the door frame of your household, the death angel would pass over and you'd be rescued. You'd be kept safe. So each year they would come together to celebrate this Passover festival. Oddly enough, this is the time that Jesus is now in Jerusalem and about to be crucified. So Simon is here for the same reason. Now more than likely, Simon had a hard time finding a place to stay as Jerusalem would be full of people from everywhere. So the Bible tells us that he's out in the countryside, maybe staying in a village somewhere, but he's coming into town and he gets caught up in this group of people who are headed to Golgotha. 
Now, probably Simon believed this cross that he's about to carry belonged to a criminal like everybody else. But he took this cross upon himself and he pulled it, probably a nuisance at, at least, and maybe a complete hassle at best. And little did Simon know that what he's about to do is to demonstrate what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. He's about to fulfill something that Jesus said chapters before. See, Jesus said this in talking to his disciples. If you want to be my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your what? Your cross and follow me. You want to follow me? You want to be my disciples? Here's what it looks like. You take up your cross and you follow me. See, until chapter 15, the disciples have not fully understood this. Because as they've served alongside of Jesus, there's been a lot of celebrity that has come with this. I mean, sure, there's been pushback from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Rome itself. But up until this point in time, things have been good. Jesus would travel around. Crowds would come around. Jesus would multiply food. The disciples got some too. In the end, the disciples even argued about who would be first in the kingdom of heaven one day when they finally got there. And over and over and over, it seems obvious that the disciples of Jesus don't understand what it means to truly follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, here's what it looks like. And Simon is putting it on display. Take up your cross and follow me. We learn a lot from this encounter with Jesus. One of the first things we see is this, that to be a Christian means we carry our cross like him. We carry our cross like him. The good news of Jesus Christ is laced all throughout the New Testament with multiple symbols and different meanings. But the most common symbol of all, I would argue, in the New Testament is this. Being a follower of Jesus is first and foremost about a death. It is first and foremost about a crucifixion of an old way of living. That our old selves, our flesh, is nailed to the cross of Calvary, and in doing so, we experience newness of life. If you are someone who's become a Christian, for some of us, we do so believing it's going to make life perfect. Everything's going to be fine. All the things that were broken will now be put back together. That is not what Jesus promises. In fact, if anything else, he promises that what you're going to do is you're going to find all the ways that don't align with this new kingdom of God, and those things have to die in order for you to experience new life. There's a reason that within the church in multiple different ways, namely within baptism, when we baptize someone in the waters, we put them under the water, we say buried in death but then raised to walk in new life. First and foremost, to be a follower of Jesus, there's a death that must take place. When I was seven years old, I became a Christian. I made the decision to pray a prayer in my home church in Lafayette, Indiana. And I remember from a seven-year-old on, I didn't quite understand the decision I had made. I knew clearly the Spirit had done something in me, but I didn't understand what decision I had made fully. It really wasn't until college. I was backpacking with a group of friends. We were in Tennessee. We were way in the backwoods, miles into the wilderness. We'd spent a couple nights already, and on our third night, we had a campfire. And we sat around the campfire, and we were just talking about life. And eventually, our conversation kind of led to what it means to be a believer. We were all in Bible college. It was a common conversation for us. And we sat around this fire, and I remember talking to them and, and thinking about Jesus, thinking about the decision that we had made to be in Bible college, to go into ministry, to love God. I had this notebook in my hand. I started to write down in my notebook all the different old ways of living that I had in my life. And some of them I've, I had perpetuated and kept on for a very long time. I started writing all of them down. There was this thing and there was this thing. It was, it was old fleshly nature. It was an old self. It was an old way of doing things before Jesus. 
And eventually I took that piece of paper, I tore it out, I crumpled it up, and I threw it in the fire. And as soon as I did, there really was a transformation that took place within my life. There was something new that began to happen within me, but I began to realize that first and foremost, it's about a death so that I could experience real and true life. I would attribute a lot of what I do today, a lot of the ways that I live today to that one night with my friends, recognizing and realizing that to be a disciple, I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus. You see, the cross is a symbol of death, and that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So the Bible says that as Simon carries this cross, eventually Simon and Jesus and the crowd, they arrive in Golgotha. And the soldiers took Jesus, the Bible says, hands and feet. And they were painfully nailed to the cross. They lifted him up in shame for everybody to see. And there was a sign placed over his head that said this, the king of the Jews. This was a claim for many. Jesus seemed to even claim this, and others who followed him seemed to claim this. This is the king of the Jews. But the Romans did this as a way of mockery because they believed there was only one king, and his name was Caesar. And if Caesar's king, it can't possibly be some obscure Jewish man. He can't be king. The Bible says he was crucified. Then it says something very important. It says that he was killed and hung between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One on his right and one on his left. You see, we carry the cross like him, but we also in this encounter see that he hangs on the cross for us. He hangs on the cross for us. One of the reasons Mark gives this detail that Jesus is hung between two criminals on his right and on his left, it's Mark's way of saying there are three people who are crucified here and one of them does not belong. And it's the one in the middle. The one who was innocent of every charge. The one who had done nothing wrong. And yet he willingly allows himself to be crucified and killed just like the criminal on his right and the criminal on his left. Jesus takes a place that should never have been his. And it's a sacrificial act of love. I came across this piece of art this week, and it was actually made in 1653. It's an etching, and it's amazing to think someone would etch this out and then be able to print this based upon uh, you know, creating this masterpiece. Rembrandt made this. And if you look at this etching, your eyes automatically are drawn to the very center, to Jesus on the cross. But the more you look at this picture, you can see the criminals on his right, on his left, and you can see everyone around at the foot of the cross with different expressions and and reactions to what's taking place as the Son of God is crucified and killed. But in this picture also in the shadows, just off to the side, there's one kind of obscure character who's also looking out over the cross, and art critics believe this is actually Rembrandt who put himself into the etching. As a way of saying, as he looks over this scene, he realizes that Jesus, there on the cross, this is not his rightful place. This is actually where Rembrandt should have been. This is a rightful place for each one of us as sinful people. And this picture, as we look at it, reminds us that Jesus has done something here for us, something that we deserved, but he took it on himself. You see, the beginning of Mark chapter 1 says this. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. The first verse of the entire book. This is the beginning of the good news of of Jesus. You know what the good news is? This picture right here. The good news is this. That Jesus Christ allowed himself to be crucified as a criminal even though he deserved 
none of it. That he ultimately took on the cross himself and was the ultimate result of the sickness of sin that should have happened to every one of us. But he takes it upon himself so that we don't have to have it ourselves. That is good news. And Mark takes us from chapter 1 to chapter 15 to show us this. Then Mark tells us what happens next in chapter 15. It says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As you read this portion of the, of the story, it seems that all of creation was aware of the atrocity of what was taking place here. The whole land grew dark, and from noon to three, this is the way it stayed, until Jesus breathed his last, and he quotes Psalm 22 by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For two reasons. One, he's in anguish. His body's been broken. He's been beaten. He's literally given it all until his final breath. In his human nature, he's crying out, just as he had done in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking for this cup to pass from him. But secondly, I believe he's doing this as well to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Things that have been written about him hundreds of years before. That he would speak these words. That the onlookers would believe he's calling on Elijah. That the vinegar on the sponge would be given to him. All of it as a part of fulfillment of scripture from hundreds of years. And verse 37 says this. And Jesus, in a loud cry, he breathed his last. And at that moment... The temple of the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, to us, that might sound like an insignificant detail. I mean, Jesus dies seems like the important part here. But Mark wants to tell us that the curtain within the temple was torn. But if you're a first century Jewish reader, this, this strikes you. And here's why the Jewish temple was the center of Jewish life. Everything took place within the temple. You worshiped in the temple. You had festivals in the temple. The pride of the people and of the, the nation for their God took place in the temple. It was the center of worship, the center of national identity. For the Jewish people, the temple was where heaven met earth. For the Jewish people, this is where God met his people. One of the things that I love about serving this church among many is that there are so many people who I hear on a Sunday morning who come into worship in traditional or in contemporary, and they'll say to me, listen, when I come here, I feel the presence of God. When I come here, I feel like, like I meet with God, like he's, he's here, present with us as we sing in the pews, as we open up his word. We meet with God in this place. We love this church. Emma spoke to it earlier, our, our new member class. It's one of the most encouraging things every time. You see, for us as staff, we are here so often, we are here so much that for us it becomes just kind of a, a mundane thing sometimes. But to hear someone who's new and fresh to this church say something's happening here, oh, it refreshes my soul. It reminds me of what we're about. It reminds me of what we're doing. 
I think it's the same thing that's true for these Jewish people. When they come to the temple, it was a chance to meet with God in a special way. In fact, it's the very reason that every single year, Jews from all over the world would travel together for Passover in the temple to meet with God and to be reminded of his faithfulness towards them. But the temple, in particular, was designated for only some people. If you came to the temple, there was only some places, degrees of sacred space that you were allowed into. So if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, there was only a certain space you could come into far removed from the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple. If you were a woman, there was only certain places you could go to. I'm just telling you the truth. In the ancient Near East, you were unable to go into the most sacred places of the temple. In fact, in the very middle of the temple, all partitioned off by curtains and by veils, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And the only people allowed there were the priests. And the priests would enter the Holy of Holies and they would bring sacrifices as a way of making things right with God and the people right with him. And inside of the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple, there was something called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, they believe, was the very presence of God. It was a box uh, not much bigger than what I'm making with my hands right here. On the very lid, there was a golden lid that would cover the entire thing. Two angels or cherubim on each side. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there was multiple things. But one of those things was the broken Ten Commandments. Alongside of the second Ten Commandments, they were given as well. Both placed within the Ark. Now, on top of this lid that covered the Ark, there was a place that the Jewish people called the Mercy Seat. They believed it was the place where God would sit present with them and he would offer mercy to them. And what they would do is they would take the blood of the sacrificed animal and they would come into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So as God looked down from heaven, he would no longer see the broken Ten Commandments, the broken law, the sinful people, but instead he would have to look through the blood of what? The sacrifice. And no longer would God see the broken law. He would see the sacrifice that was made to make people right with him. It's called the mercy seat. In the New Testament, this word mercy seat shows up in, in Hebrews as well. But the same word is used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It's an interesting passage when we think of Jesus' sacrifice. 1 John 2, 2 says this. He is the anointing sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. It's the same word used as mercy seat. Some translations will say propitiation. It's all the same. He is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, here's why the curtain was torn. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, it was the final sacrifice of all. No longer was there needed to be any kind of designation, no more curtains, no more veils, no more Gentiles outside and women only here. But now everyone was available to come into the most holy presence of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And his blood now covers us. So God doesn't see our broken, sinful lives, but he sees the sacrifice. And we're made right with him. So the veil is torn. If you're a first century Jewish reader, if you hear about this taking place, you know what this means. Everyone is now available to be in the presence of God themselves because of the sacrifice of Jesus. There's now no need of a sacrificial system. It's been taken place by one sacrifice. The temple has been made obsolete and the presence of God has moved not just to one single place any longer, but now it exists within a person named Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the new temple, and we are invited in. 
Jesus is the new temple, and we are invited in, every single one of us, no matter who you are or where you come from, you are invited in. The presence of God is no longer held within just a temple, an ark, or a sanctuary. It's held most clearly in the living person of Jesus Christ. He is the temple. It's where heaven meets earth. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says this, There is neither now Jew nor Gentile. There's now no slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean there's no distinction between us. It means there's no barriers that keep us away from God any longer. All of us are welcomed in, into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. There's no longer need of a sacrifice. Jesus did it. There's no need of some kind of offering. Our lives of obedience are all that's required. And we are welcomed in alongside of Jesus. Because the veil, the curtain has been torn. Chapter 15, the very last line of this section says this in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was what? The son of God. Surely this man was the son of God. If you have eyes to see it, it's the final answer to the question that's been asked all throughout the book. Who is Jesus? This centurion tells us, surely he is the son of God. And the Bible says it this way. The reason he says this is because he saw the way he died. In this way. What does that mean? Because the centurion saw him die in this way. Now some might think it's because the prophecies of the Old Testament are, are fulfilled in the death of Jesus in so many ways. But this guy's a centurion. He's, he's Roman. He's not Jewish. He may not have even known these things about Jesus and prophecy. I'm convinced that what the centurion sees in the life and death of Jesus is someone who is so full of humility, so willing to sacrifice, who doesn't fight back, who doesn't resist, but instead allows himself to be arrested and beaten and crucified and killed. And in watching this take place, his only response is this, surely this man is the son of God. Everything everybody's talked about. Here's why. Jesus' death validates his life. Jesus' death validates his life. All the claims about who he was is made true in the crucifixion. My 10-year-old son, Eli, um, my wife and I have loved sushi for a long time. Any sushi lovers in the room? Any sushi haters in the room? Be honest. Well, Eli, until very recently, was on board with you. We would, take, we would eat sushi. My wife and I love it. We would eat sushi. We're like, hey, you want to you try some sushi? He's like, well, what's in it? And we're like, oh, boy. Um, well, there's raw fish. No. Uh, there's seaweed. You want some? He's <laughs> like, no, I don't want any. That sounds terrible. I, I don't want to try sushi. I don't want any sushi. Well, for whatever reason, two nights ago, um, he decided he wanted some sushi. And so my wife and him went on a little mommy-son date uh, into town. I kept the other you know, individuals at home. Barely survived. But they were out for dinner. And they went to go spend some time together. And so Eli decided he wanted to get some sushi. So they went and they ordered some and it came into the car. And Eli had six pieces of California roll because you got to start slow. And so he started eating them. And when he came home, he was like, Dad, sushi is so good. I'm like, I know. We've been telling you this for years. 
Like, you don't understand, though, Dad. It's, it's so good. And, like, it, it's like there's six little rules. He's explaining to him, like, I know. I'm fully aware. And he was, he was in love with it. To the point now, for two days in a row now, we've had to have sushi because he's discovered the goodness of sushi. And uh, probably today we'll have to try to find some as well. But here's the thing. He'd been told about this for a long time. And it wasn't until he encountered and experienced it for himself that he finally realized, wow, this is good. This is good. And all of our claims were validated simply because he finally tried some for himself. I would argue that all of the claims made about Jesus throughout his life, all the things that he has done, the healings, the multiplication of food, the casting out of demons, the telling of stories, all that he's done throughout the entire book, as he goes to the cross and he crucif- he's crucified, and he sacrifices his very body and sheds his blood for us, it validates all of those things. To the point where a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, someone outside of the Jewish culture, outside of the Jewish elite, is even able to look at him on the cross and say, surely this is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who's come to make all things right, the one who's come to bound up the brokenhearted, to heal the wounds, to restore creation, to do it all. This is the Son of God. So this morning, my question very simply is this. Have you ever made this claim for yourself? Have you ever looked at Jesus, perhaps even over the past eight weeks, as we've looked at him in different vantage points, different kind of angles, and we've seen the way he's encountered people, have you ever looked at him and concluded for yourself, truly this man must have been the Son of God, the one that we were waiting for, the one that we have trusted in, and I want to put my faith and my hope and my trust in him, because I believe it's true. All those claims seem to be validated through his life, death, and ultimately in his resurrection. You see, he's not dead anymore. He's very much alive and working in each and every one of our lives. And he meets us here this morning because he is the new temple. And we, all of us, are invited in. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I want to be first in line today to say thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your willingness for you to give up your life for sinful people. I thank you for the willingness to be that mercy seat, to be the one who stood on our behalf, who broke his body and shed his blood that Jesus, that you might make us right with God. And so this morning, I pray for all of us is that we would be able to look at you and make the same claim that truly you are the Son of God. And we place our faith and our hope and our trust in you. And so this morning, I just want to invite you with your eyes closed, just for a moment, just be silent before him. Maybe from your heart and from your mind, would you just tell Jesus I trust you. I believe you to be true. Just take a moment and tell him that. So Jesus, today, we like Simon of Cyrene, 
We want to take our cross and carry it and follow you. We recognize it's going to cost us something, but we believe that you are worth it. And we believe what you say in the scriptures, that if we hold on to our life, ultimately we will lose it. But if we give up our life for your sake, that's where we actually find it. I've seen it true in my life, God. I've seen it true in many. So I pray this morning, God, that we would all leave here today committed to loving you because of your sacrifice that you've made for us. Thank you for freeing us from the guilt and shame of sin. We are now made right with you. We love you today. We worship you today. It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.